Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Paul Shapiro. Paul is an innovator in the clean meat space, and I actually wrote a book titled Clean Meat, and um, we have him uh, here with us today to kind of share what's going on in kind of new food trends that are really really look like they're going to make a, a difference in terms of sustainability and in terms of how people live their lives. So, Paul, thanks for taking the time to chat. Great to be with you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get involved with kind of the clean meat industry? What is clean meat? And, you know, just tell us a little bit about your background. I have been concerned about food sustainability for a very long time, especially with regard to the way that animals who are in the food industry are treated, with regard to the environmental footprint of how we're producing food, and especially with this concern about how we're going to feed humanity as billions and billions more of us come onto the planet. So right now, we have 7.5 billion of us walking the earth, which is already uh, helping to stretch the capacity of how uh, we're able to sustain ourselves. And then when you consider that by 2050, we're probably going to have 9 or 10 billion of us, mm. it becomes clear that, you know, the Earth isn't getting any bigger, but humanity's footprint on it is getting bigger. And so if we want to be able to provide food for these coming billions of people, and we want to be able to provide it sustainably, and we want to be able to provide them with the kind of food they're going to want to eat, we're going to have to get a lot more efficient about how we're producing food. And clean meat, or growing real meat from animal cells outside of the animal's body, is one type of a solution to increasing that, that kind of efficiency. So how long has the idea of clean meats actually been around? Well, it's a fascinating history, and I'm so glad you brought up the book, Jim, because in Clean Meat, I do chronicle this history. But basically, at the uh, end of the 19th century, there was a French chemist who was talking about it. And then in 1931, none other than Winston Churchill, uh, mm -hmm. years before he became prime minister of Great Britain, uh, basically wrote this essay called 50 Years Hence, in which he started making predictions about what the world would be like in the 1980s. And one of the predictions he made was that we would escape the absurdity, to use his words, of raising an entire chicken when all you really want is the breast, and we'll grow the breast under a suitable medium. Now, Churchill may have been a few decades off in his prediction, but the future that he envisioned is now coming to fruition. So we're not talking about alternatives to meat or plant-based meat where you take uh, plants and make them look and taste like animal meat. I love those products. They're great. I enjoy eating them. But we're not talking about substitutes to meat. We're talking about real, actual animal meat that is divorced from having to raise an entire animal. And think about the efficiencies that that can bring. When you're only growing the muscle that you want and you don't have to grow the rest of the entire animal, you can use dramatically less land, dramatically less water, emit far fewer greenhouse gas emissions, have a much more humane method of animal of, of, of animal meat production, and you just have so many benefits, including from a food safety perspective, that it's a very attractive way to produce meat. I agree. Um, one of the challenges, though, it seems to me, is the fact that 
you know, a lot of those costs that you mentioned, the, the water, the pollution, the, the land, a lot of these costs are actually offloaded to society right now by, by uh, agribusiness. And it really isn't something that are, that's being addressed. That's exactly right. And so when you think about it, let's take Americans as an example. There are about 325 million of us. And for the most part, when we go to the bathroom, we flush it down a toilet, it goes into a sewage system where it gets treated before it gets released back into, let's say, rivers. Uh, whereas throughout the course of a year, there are 9 billion, billion of the B, farm animals raised on factory farms in America. And every single one of them, when they go to the bathroom, it does not get treated. Instead, it gets put either into manure lagoons or it gets put directly onto fields. And the problem is when you have so many animals concentrated together, you have these massive volumes of waste. And when it gets applied to the uh, fields, you can have uh, too much phosphorus, too much nitrogen, and that can lead to die-offs in local waterways. And so those are not costs that get paid for by the meat companies, rather, as you correctly pointed out, Jim, they get paid by society, in this case, in the form of uh, wildlife slaughter and other uh, environmental problems, huge problems for the neighbors with air pollution and so on. And so the real cost of meat is not paid at the cash register when we go, because a lot of the costs of producing meat end up getting externalized and paid for by others. So, I mean, it would seem to be a, uh, a difficult hill for an industry to climb to kind of be able to overcome those, those offloaded costs not being accounted for. Um, at what kind of an efficiency can you get in terms of growing meat in a culture to a, such a level that you can actually replace what's being generated in factory farms? Great question, Jim. So at this point, there are about 20 startups across the world that are now trying to commercialize their clean meat. And first, let me just back up and say the reason that it's called clean meat is both as a nod to clean energy, because it's so much cleaner for the planet to produce it this way, but second, because it's just literally cleaner. Think about it. Right now, when you have raw meat in your kitchen, you're warned really to treat it almost like toxic waste because the meat has feces on it. Intestinal pathogens like E. coli and salmonella mm. and Campylobacter wow. can sicken us if we don't. Yeah. These pathogens can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat literally. I mean, literally cook the crap out of the meat. And when you're growing clean meat, though, you're not growing intestines at all. You're just growing the muscle and the fat that you want. And so you don't have to worry so much about those type of intestinal pathogens that plague the meat industry today. Now, going back to your question, Jim, the study that lots of people point to on this is an Oxford University study. And it found that growing clean beef compared to producing cattle for beef requires 99% less land, about 96% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, up to 90% less water use. And so, yes, there are some structural advantages that current conventional meat production has. But when you look at efficiency gains that are as dramatic as that, you realize that once this clean meat industry scaled up, I think there's a good chance that it could not only be cost competitive, but actually could perhaps be cheaper than producing animals for food today. 
I would imagine so. I mean, I, I think you just have to get to a, a certain level of scale, but I mean, to be able to do it again with less space and with with those kind of improvements in terms of the quality of the meat, I mean, I have to think that from a health perspective, that's going to make a huge difference in terms of human life. Yeah, well, certainly from a food safety perspective, it makes a big difference for the reasons that we just noted. But at the same time, when you have that much control over the meat, you can actually make meat that is better than current meat. So yes, you can grow meat that is the same as our meat today, but lots of people know that eating a lot of meat is just not good for you. It's high in cholesterol, it's high in saturated fat, things that help to contribute to our uh, our crises of heart disease and other types of so-called uh, diseases of affluence that are plaguing the U.S. and the developed world. At the same time, when you have so much control at the cellular level of how you're growing this meat, theoretically, you could, let's say, reduce the saturated fat content and maybe bump up the omega-3 fatty acid content so Mm. that rather than having burgers that give you a heart attack, maybe you'll have burgers that prevent heart attacks. Nobody's trying to do that right now, but theoretically there's nothing that would stop people from doing that. Now, I know that when we chatted before that I had asked you is... Is this basically a different form of GMO, of genetically modified organism? But you said no, but what you just outlined would seem to me to be a GMO take on on an approach to clean meat. Well, it doesn't involve genetic modification. There would be no genetic modification needed in order to do that. Um, Certainly, using genetic modification in these type of products would be more efficient. It would be faster. But because of the um, public concerns that there are about GMO technologies, none of the companies that are growing meats for human consumption eventually are actually using them right now. Uh, Other companies, though, are using some types of GMO processes. Um, Like, so, for example, not clean meat producers, but there are uh, companies that are seeking to produce, let's say, for example, dairy proteins and producing dairy proteins without cows. And so they are using some type of uh, genetic modification in uh, microbial fermentation process. The GMOs don't actually make it into the final product there, but they are still using it in some senses. But I will point out that just take as one example, hard cheese sold right now. Before the 1970s, all the hard cheese that was sold had rennet in it. And rennet is a, um, it basically comes from calf intestinal linings. Mm. And it helps the cheese, it helps the milk curdle so you can have cheese. And there's not a lot of calf intestinal lining available. And so a company figured out how to produce rennet without having to use calf intestinal lining. And basically what they do is they genetically modify a bacteria that causes the bacteria to produce what's called chymosin, the functional um, enzyme that's contained in rennet. And then they separate out the GM bacteria away from it, and then you have pure chymosin at the end, and that's what's in all the cheese that is eaten today. So in basically all of the hard cheese that is consumed in America today, you have a product that is made via genetic modification. Now, the GMOs are not in the final product, so it's labeled as GM-free, but you still have some genetic modification there. And that is the same exact technique 
that some of these companies are using, for example, making cow-free dairy proteins, um, they're doing the same exact thing that's been done for decades safely and without any concern from almost anybody. Hmm. So in terms of, you mentioned uh, the, the creation of meat, but I would assume that you could do the the same thing for seafood. Uh, there Are there seafood companies that are trying to do the same approach in terms of creating clean seafood? That is exactly right, Jim. So uh, one of the pioneers in this space is a startup that's called Finless Food. Finless mm. Foods has raised several million dollars from venture capital funds in order to produce real fish grown outside of uh, outside of the fish's body. And several months ago, I actually had the privilege of getting to taste some of their carp, and it was very good. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, but what they're doing is they're essentially taking a tiny little biopsy of fish flesh. Think about like a sesame seed-sized biopsy. And you put it in a cultivator and you make those cells essentially believe that they're still in the fish's body. And the cells believe that and they do exactly what they would do inside of the fish's body. They multiply and grow into new cells. That's exactly what happens in your body and in my body and in a cow and a chicken and a fish's body as well. And so all that these companies are doing is simply mimicking the natural processes that occur inside of an animal's body, but divorce it from the body and put it into a cultivator that allows those cells to multiply and to create the type of meat that people want to eat. I mean, that's really uh, a game changer in terms of the, the depletion of the oceans. Um, um, uh, there was a study done by, I think it was World Wildlife Federation, that uh, looked at tuna stocks are down like 80% over the past 30 years and obviously are bound for extinction. So Yeah. Yeah, it's just to think about what we're doing to the planet. I mean, we have to be able to basically find a way to save humanity from ourselves, let alone all the other species who need saving as well. And so tuna is just one example, but the oceans are in collapse. Yeah. And they're in collapse because of us. Uh, you know, I mean, people talk about, oh, we need to um, prevent using plastic straws because they're polluting the oceans. Well, that's all fine and good. I mean, I think you know, single-use plastic will probably be a thing of the past at some point in the future and hopefully soon. Um, at the same time, straws represent far less than 1% of the plastic pollution in the ocean. About 50% of it is netting from the fishing industry. Yeah. And so that's just, I mean, it's not just that we are uh, killing all these fish to eat them, but then we leave all of this uh, fishing trash in the ocean, which kills more and more fish even after uh, we're done fishing, and so it's killing whales, it's killing dolphins, it's sea turtles, and we have to find a way to have our meat and eat it too. And it's not going to be from so-called uh, sustainable seafood. It's going to be by growing real fish without having to go out and, and take fish from the ocean or engage in aquaculture. And the same is so for uh, land-based agriculture as well. If we want to get serious about environmental sustainability and food security as we move into the future, we're going to have to find ways to feed ourselves that are far more uh, efficient than we've done in the past. And growing animal products without animals is a very logical step for humanity to take. So one of the issues around um, being able to kind of 
redirect um, the attention of dollars, especially from a corporate lobbying standpoint, would be to kind of educate politicians with this uh, year's midterms coming up. Have um, you had any interest among politicians about the work that you're doing and from you know, the companies that are doing this kind of work? of interest in the plant-based alternative sector, where uh, people are producing, for example, milk and meat and eggs from plants. So, for example, you think about the company Just, which is formerly known as Hampton Creek, they now have a product called Just Scrambled. It's made from mung beans, and it's scrambled up just like a regular scrambled egg. Or if you think about the explosion of plant-based milks on the market, from soy milk and almond milk and coconut milk and rice milk and so on, on the market, those have gained enormous popularity. And now plant-based meats like burgers and chicken nuggets that are made from plants are also becoming very popular. And lawmakers are taking a look at those. Uh, However, unfortunately, a lot of what they're doing is trying to figure out ways to stifle that industry because it presents a threat to animal agriculture. Now, some smart meat companies like Tyson and Cargill have invested in alternative protein companies. Uh, But some in the meat industry, like the um, U.S. Cattlemen's Association, for example, fear that these products could take away market share from conventionally produced animal meat. Now, think about that, whether our lawmakers ought to be inserting themselves into the market in this type of a way, for example, by passing laws preventing uh, companies from calling so- from saying it's soy milk. Mm-hmm. They want us to be able to force them to say it's soy beverage, as an example. Um, and so, uh, for example, lawmakers in the state of Missouri recently passed a law saying that these companies can't even call it plant-based meat. Uh, so that's, there's real problems going on there. Uh, sadly, most of what's happening in this realm is to try to thwart alternative protein sources from com- from becoming mainstream. In terms of clean meat, though, so not plant-based meats, but actual meats grown from animal cells, there uh, there's less attention on it simply because none of these products are yet commercialized. However, the Food and Drug Administration in July did hold the first ever government hearing on the issue of growing meat from animal cells. And it was a surprisingly fair and balanced hearing, actually. The FDA did a pretty good job of just having a listen. Actually, I shouldn't even call it a hearing. It was really a listening session to hear from folks about this industry. And a lot of people came and expressed different points of view. But the FDA is taking this issue seriously, has already expressed jurisdiction over it. And now there's a little bit of a food fight between the FDA and the USDA, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture, over who will regulate this industry. But there's not much to regulate yet because none of these products are being sold. But the commercialization of clean meat is only years away, not decades. And so it's good that these agencies are getting ahead of the ball now. Yeah, I mean, the the whole dynamic that exists of existing industries holding back through basically lobbying money efforts at innovation, whether it's, you know, electric car companies and, you know, what gets done there or solar energy and what goes on with utilities trying to prevent the spread of, you know, uh, solar being placed on houses. Um, right. You know, the there's a concerted effort among large businesses to hold off the change for as long as possible. And 
Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? So in the mid-19th century, there was this huge ice shipping industry. Huge. Big blocks of ice were getting harvested out of northern lakes and being shipped all around the world in insulated boats where they could sell people ice because the only way then that we had to get ice was from nature. Well, enter the advent of refrigeration, and all of a sudden you have a much more efficient way to get ice simply by cooling the water down right in front of you, and you now have ice. All of a sudden, humanity had a technological innovation that allowed us to produce what nature had been producing except for much, a much more efficient and safe manner. Well, the ice shipping barons were livid over this technological innovation, and they railed against what they called artificial ice, saying that it could thicken you, you didn't know what would be, uh, what was in it, the ammonia and the coolants might leak out into your food or your drinks, and you just didn't want to mess around with this so-called artificial ice. Well, you know, you fast forward to today, and virtually every single one of us has an artificial ice maker in our homes. We call them freezers, and we don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. And in fact, most of us would think it was a bit primitive to go out and harvest ice from a lake that has who knows what in it yeah. and use that ice for our own consumption. And we don't think there's anything unnatural about ice from our freezers at all. Well, the same, I think, will be so with clean meat. That for millennia, the only way we've had to get meat was from animals' bodies. But now, humanity has invented a technological innovation that allows us to produce the same thing, except without the animals, and in a much safer way. And in the future, we may think that it's only natural that we will be growing meat. And in fact, we may think of it as kind of primitive, the idea of raising and slaughtering animals for food. And many people will imagine it... Maybe like they think about the days of whaling, you know, yeah. when we used whale oil in our homes to light our homes, and mm -hmm. now we would be, you know, most people in America would be horrified by the thought of slaughtering whales to light our homes. And in the same way that you would probably never consider going and getting in a horse-drawn carriage to go out to the movies, uh, despite the fact that that was the only way we had to get around for millennia, now we don't do that anymore. And it's maybe a quaint a tourist attraction to some people to go in a horse-drawn carriage, but for the most part, we don't do that anymore. And so I really think that as clean meat progresses, we're going to think about the way that we did it in the past really as a uh, throwback to a more primitive era in humanity's evolution. I think it's an amazing, I mean, it's amazing on so many levels. I mean, clearly from a, a viewpoint of being able to do away with slaughterhouses and the abuse of animals that goes on in a um, industrial farming um, what about um, smaller farmers like uh, the mom-and-pop farmers of your that um, you know work on a small amount of land that might raise animals for those kinds of purposes, uh, where do they fit into a world with clean meats? Well, I really appreciate you bringing this up, Jim. So I do want to say one thing before I directly answer the question. Um, you're absolutely right. Most farm animals are raised on factory farms. They're not raised by small mom and pop farmers. They're yeah. raised among thousands of other animals or sometimes even millions of other animals. And so that is the way that nearly all meat gets to our plate right now. Uh, well over 95% of farm animals in America are not raised 
outdoors, rather, they are confined indoors. And so just to give a brief example, you think about the chickens who we raise for food, nearly all of them have been genetically selected to grow so big, so fast, that many of them have difficulty taking more than a few pitiful steps before they collapse underneath their own bulk. They live wing to wing in their own feces inside of enclosed warehouses where they never go outside. They never feel the sun on their back. They never take, you know, they never take a step onto a blade of grass. And when it comes time for their slaughter, well, most of us would just rather not hear about it in the first place. And so when you consider just how inhumane and unsustainable our treatment of most farm animals is, uh, clean meat seems like the naturally preferable option. I think for many farm animals in our country, slaughter is actually the best day of their lives because it's the day that their suffering finally comes to an end. Yeah. It's the day when the misery that we have wreaked on them finally ceases. Now, you're right, there are some farm animals, far less than 5%, uh, but there are some farm animals in America who do not have wretched lives. And, of course, the day of slaughter is a sad day uh, for them and often for the farmers as well who love these animals. Um, but the question is that you asked is what happens to them in a clean meat society? Well, we still have horse-drawn carriages, and some people use them. There are some communities that, that use them. Um, and I don't think that they're going to go away. Clean meat is not a competitor to those type of high-welfare, high-end meats. Clean meat is a competitor for the type of meat that most people eat, meaning meat from fast food companies, big box grocery stores, and so on. And so there's, I, I think there'll be a market for those type of high-end meats for sure uh, for a long time to come. But uh, what's most imperative for an animal welfare perspective, a food sustainability and environmental perspective, and a food safety perspective is to start replacing conventionally produced meat, the meat that represents the vast majority of it, with both plant-based meats and clean meats when, when the latter hits the market. And humanity will be in a much better position when that happens. Um, so you you think that uh, within the next couple of years we'll see clean meats in the marketplace? Yes, I do think that there will be some limited commercialization within that time frame. Uh, I don't think it's going to be something you're going to regularly see on supermarket shelves yet, but I do think there will be some sales of it in a, in a small type of way. Um, and then within you know maybe four or five years, yeah, I do think that you have real commercialization by then. And I think it's going to be in tandem with the popularization of plant-based meats because they're getting a lot better too. You think about, for example, the veggie burger of 10 years ago compared to today, it is a dramatic difference with great innovations that have made them look and taste far more like actual animal meat. Now imagine 10 years from now what they're going to be like, and you can think that they'll probably make the veggie burgers of 2018 seem pretty primitive in relation. So uh, I think you're going to have the proliferation of plant-based meats as they get better and better, and you're going to have clean meats, and both of them will be an important part of the solution to this problem. That's awesome. So um, if, so if people want to learn more about clean meats and uh, contact you to, uh, to learn more, how can they uh, reach out to you? Oh, that's so nice of you, Jim. You can just go to the website cleanmeats.com, and my contact info is on there. But again, the book is called Clean Meats, How Growing Meats Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And you can buy it anywhere you buy books. I would love for you to get it and let me know what you think of it. But again, the website is just cleanmeat.com. 
Sounds good. I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat today. And, um, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to follow up and, uh, chat once some of these, uh, products come onto the marketplace and, uh, you know, we get some feedback. Let's do it, Jim. I can't wait. It'll be a great day. We'll celebrate. That's awesome. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon.